Let's open uh, the Word of God to Romans 14, and that uh, what may have sounded to some as kind of a, an unusual passage for the call to worship, which is in the middle of a passage that teaches some incredible truth that can absolutely turn your spiritual life from a bicycle into a supersonic jet plane. And let's... Uh, Let's read, please, uh, that passage again. I want to actually go all the way through verse 6 this time. Let's read uh, Romans 14, 1-6. Now, except the one who is weak in faith, and he's talking to the Roman Christians in the Roman church, so they assemble together, they know each other, this isn't abstract, this is very practical, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, People, Christians will have different opinions about different kinds of issues within the frame of direct moral teaching in Scripture. God allows us to make our own choices. One person in the church who's a believer, who loves the Lord just as much as the guy who has a different opinion on this issue, one person has faith, a faith informed by the conviction that he may eat all things. But there is another brother, or many in the same church, who is weak in his faith, has a smaller, shrunken conception of what, in fact, is permissible and consistent with God's purposes. And this person eats vegetables only. He's stricter than God is, which is your perfect right. You've got the right to hammer out conviction stricter than Scripture, stricter than another Christian might hammer out. Now, the one who eats all things is not to regard with contempt, not to look down or sneer at the person who has a smaller conception of his Christian liberty. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat, who has a stricter uh, set of convictions in this area than the other brother, is not to judge the one who does eat, who does have a different conviction on that issue. For God has accepted him. God's accepted both of them. They're believers. They disagree on things within the frame of direct teaching of Scripture. Who are you to judge the servant of another? I mean, Blanche is the Lord's servant, and uh, Homer is the Lord's servant, and Ken's the Lord's servant, and I'm the Lord's servant. And so we kind of answer to him ultimately on these kind of conviction issues within the frame of clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, To his own master, that person, that believer, stands or falls, And the Lord's going to make him stand regardless of whether you go to movies or don't go to movies or uh, celebrate Halloween or don't celebrate Halloween. For the Lord's able to make him stand. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He's already told you that in Romans, so you already know that when you get to chapter 14. Now moving from meats to holidays. This is another area where the early Christians would disagree on their convictions. One person, one believer in the church regards one day above another. And here we're probably talking about uh, Christians celebrating Old Testament Jewish holidays, which is your perfect right as a believer. In fact, if anybody can celebrate Passover, it would be a Christian who understands who the Passover lamb is. But one person regards one day above another, celebrates certain holidays. Another believer doesn't think we need to do that because that was Old Testament pointed to Christ 
Now we just focus on Christ every day, not just on the Passover. Each person must be fully convinced in his or her own mind. Hammer out your convictions within the frame of Scripture and then go with your conviction. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord as unto the Lord, recognizing in this case the Passover in the Old Testament was all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he who eats does for to honor the Lord, and he's good about that. For he who gives thanks, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not has a stricter conviction than Scripture. Uh, for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Okay, good night. What's he talking about there? And how can you practically apply that in your Christian life? We're going to talk about that this morning. But before we do that, go back to the very beginning of the Bible. Go to Genesis chapter two, and let me. As you go into Genesis two sixteen and seventeen, let me ask you a question. Don't answer it yet. What was God's moral will in regard to Adam and Eve's diet before the fall? Let's read this passage: Genesis two sixteen and seventeen. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, "From any and all." Of the trees of the garden, you may eat freely, but there's one exception. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely, surely die spiritually, he's saying, and ultimately die physically. Okay, what was God's moral will in light of those two statements in regard to Adam and Eve's diet? I think he'd say something like, well, he says, kind of a general thing. You can eat freely from any tree except for the one specific tree. So watch this. I think we're seeing a direct specific command. Okay, Don't eat from the one in the, right there, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat that under any circumstance. That's sin for Adam, Eve. It's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every day of the week, 24-7. Don't eat from that. We're testing you on that one. But what does he say in verse 16? From all of the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. You know, there, let's picture this. Now, I wasn't there, and this isn't a photograph. This is my schematic rendering of the Garden of Eden. You know, you had all these trees, right? Uh, inside the moral frame of God, verse 16 is saying, from all those trees, you know, I left a tree out, didn't I? Well, what tree was outside of the moral will of God? Yeah. Okay. There it is, right? That's the one you're not supposed to eat. Any of the trees within the rectangle are acceptable. Okay? Yeah, but what if I don't like apples? He didn't say you have to eat apples on Monday and oranges on Tuesday and grapefruit on Fridays. He says of all the trees you may eat, you decide, but don't eat of the one. Now, by the way, God doesn't do stuff like that. He does stuff like that. Okay? There's lots of trees. Lots of trees. And he doesn't give them a schedule. He just says, of all of those, Adam, Eve, you can eat all day long. And I think science has caught up with the Bible again, because apparently a very good way to eat is uh, minimal meat or no meat. Right, Nancy? But make sure you take your B12. And kind of kind of just eat a little bit all day long instead of having this, you know, somebody said uh, until the Industrial Revolution, uh, people, especially in the West, might eat, a feast a couple of times a year. You know, Christmas you'd have a feast. Maybe on your birthday you'd have a feast. Uh, maybe certain holidays you'd have a feast a couple of times a year. 
Now, because of wonder, the wonderful technology, most of us have three feasts a day with snacks between meals, okay? But Adam and Eve would kind of just kind of gray. They'd work all day long. They were working before the fall, but not sweating and enjoying it. And they had all kinds of good choices, okay? Question two. I kind of gave this one away. What was God's will for Adam and Eve's specific meal choices on Mondays as opposed to Thursdays? And I, I've often wondered if, you know, after the thing is set up, if one morning they wake up and... uh Adam says, golly, I wonder what God wants us to eat today, Eve. What do you think? And she goes, I, I don't know. I don't think he told us exactly what we're supposed to eat. Why don't you go ask him? And when you talk about the Lord walking in the garden, that's a pre-New Testament incar- incarnational visible form of God in the person of the second person, Jesus Christ. He's literally walking around with them, interacting with them before the fall. And I, this didn't really happen, but maybe Adam said, hey, uh, my wife asked me a question. That's, I have a lot of people come to me as a pastor. Hey, my wife asked me a question. What do you think about this, that, and the other? I was like, just do what she said. You know, that's, you know why not? Uh, but uh, so he goes up to to Christ, uh, the visible form of God, and he goes, uh, "Hey, he wanted to know what are we supposed to eat today." And you know what Jesus would have said? I told you. He said, oh, really? What was it? Monday was apples, right? Now, of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. You get what you want. Now, there's one tree you can't eat, and you can't rationalize that. And don't get there close even, look at it and lust over it, because you're going to want it. But just leave it alone. But of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat. You know what he did? He gave them freedom to choose. Within the frame of moral good... The tree of the knowledge of evil is never good, never right. You can't justify it. Don't play with it. But within the frame of God's general moral will, within the frame of a general principle of all the trees of the garden, let's call that a general command, they can eat whatever they want to. I've often said I think that God gives the believer a life, and it's like a big canvas. Some of us have smaller canvases. Some of us get bigger canvases. gives you an array of colors, and he basically says, Paint me a picture to the Lordship of Christ. Now, don't throw the paints on the walls or on the floor and other people. That's outside of the canvas. The canvas is the moral will of God. But within the moral will of God, we have an incredible amount of liberty, of freedom to make choices, even when those convictions will differ from other Christians that love Jesus just as much as we do. Sometimes our convictions will be very much stricter than Scripture. And if that's the way the Lord's leading you, enjoy it. But don't use that as a uh, as a cudgel you're going to use to beat other people on the head or look down your nose because they're not as spiritual as you are because uh, they let their kids trick-or-treat under strict supervision as opposed to sending them to our sanitized, healthy Halloween alternative. <laughs> you know. So we're going to talk about uh, how to make good choices and how to relate to Christians who come to different conclusions within the trees of the garden as to what they're going to eat. Okay, But as is our custom and it's important, let's pray for uh, teachability and also for our firefighters, our peace officers, and uh, our active military. Okay, and uh, Eric, lead us in prayer. Okay, Thank you, uh, Eric. Appreciate that. Uh, for the rest of the month of January, we're going to do some special messages. Next week we're going to talk about 
Jehovah's Witnesses, what they believe, and Mormonism. We're just going to give you a slight, concise summary of their basic doctrinal patterns. I know uh, uh, Clay did some in-depth research on Jehovah's Witnesses a few months ago, so you know you might want to fill in the gaps or anything I don't cover. But uh, you don't have to hide on the couch or uh, refrain from opening your door if they ring the, the door if you want to talk to them. Uh, and really, you're going to look at two groups that are very different but have the same basic spiritual needs. So we'll do that, Lord willing, and weather permitting. Next week, uh, the last Sunday in January, we're going to do the uh, POGs of TBF, Purpose, Objectives, and Goals, and kind of give the, the big picture of what uh, our conception as a board of elders uh, we feel like the church is, uh, this church is trying to do. This isn't the only good church in Duncan. Praise God, there's a lot of good churches in Duncan. <clears throat> We're not even the best church for everybody in Duncan, but I think we are a good church. I think God's given us kind of a unique a niche, as it were, and uh, we'll talk about the game plan so you can maybe understand what we're trying to do. And then, Lord willing, uh, first Sunday in February, we're going to start a new book study. We'll be in First Peter in the New Testament, so if you'd like to read ahead, uh, please feel free to do that. But right now, look at your, your notes there, uh, your study sheet notes. You know, put this in here and front and back this week. But I want you to look at this list that's the top third of the page. And as you look at that list, I won't take the time to read the whole thing, but I want to highlight a couple of things. I realize there there are some Christians who feel like some or maybe almost all of the things on this list are clearly on the out-of-bounds, clearly knowledge of the tree of good and evil kind of thing that clearly no Christian should ever do under any circumstances. But I think most of us would see some of these things, and I frankly see all of them, as areas within that rectangle that Christians should make wise choices about. And let me just pick a few, uh, kind of cherry pick to use uh, an intended metaphor there. Uh, playing card games with real cards. Now, uh, I was never a big card player. I'm not a big card player now, but I'm married into a family well, these people play cards, man, 24-7, and they use real cards. Now, I grew up in a, a Baptist culture uh, where we were told pool tables were evil. I think because probably there was in the 1940s and 50s, probably if you went to a pool hall, people were probably smoking stuff they shouldn't smoke and doing things with each other they shouldn't do. And so that tainted the pool table. And so I was told uh, as a young Baptist boy that pool tables were evil, you know, and uh as a result, I'm a very poor pool player. I didn't get to practice in my formative years. I was playing baseball and golf all day long, so that was probably a good thing. Just one, one reason I've got skin cancers because I was outside all the time. But, uh, yeah, but, so to the extent I had experience the cards, skip bow cards, you know, Baptists would play with skip bow cards because those aren't real cards. They don't have queens and jacks and stuff and that kind of thing. And, you know, a lot of sincere people believe that. And if they, if that's your conviction, you have a right to that, of course. But I, I can't find a verse that says thou shalt not use real playing cards, you know, things like that in the Bible. So uh, that's not necessarily a black and white moral issue. Uh, parachute jumping. Uh, what was like the first temptation of the Lord Jesus? Wasn't it to use a parachute? No, it was, it was to jump off the pinnacle of the temple without the... I guess that wasn't the first one. Uh, Get my guys out of order there. But yeah, one of the temptations was jump off the pinnacle of the temple. I remember uh, Rick, Rick, not Buchanan, Rick uh, Shonomar in his old age, uh, before he 
moved away to the promised land of Edmund. Uh, that is the promised land. That's where two sets of twins live that are very close to my, my heart. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, he jumped out of an airplane. I think he was strapped to another person, which I, isn't that a sin? No, I, 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 that's more, more of a problem for me than jumping out of the airplane. Uh, but isn't that like tempting God to jump out of a perfectly good airplane if you don't have to with a parachute? Now, the flip side of that would be buying insurance. Isn't that a lack of trust in God? I, I think some people have spun it that way in Christian circles. Not lately. That's kind of an older one. And, and you know, the, kind of the taboos we've got now will be... The problem is we, we draw a line on some of these issues like it's the whole faith, it's the whole deal. And the one that really jumps out in my lifetime was buying from stores with scanners and UBS, you know, UPS barcode things. When that first came out in my church culture, people were freaking out because, I mean, the Antichrist, you know, is going to put that on people's foreheads and stuff. And so how, you can't go to the one grocery store in town that uses scanners. You've got to go to the one with the antiquated, uh, cash registers. And there are a lot of Christians who really thought that was evil. That was a sign of the Antichrist. You're denying the faith if you go to the one store and then both stores and then all the grocery stores had them. And what are you going to do? Starve to death. And then you realize, you know what? That's not really an issue spiritually. I mean, there's nothing evil in itself. Within the frame of lying, cheating, stealing, murdering is always wrong. But within the stuff is not evil. Matter is not evil. Playing cards aren't evil. Uh, computer technology is not evil. Uh, DVD uh, media technology is not evil. It's neutral. It depends on what's the message and how's it being used. That's what counts. It's from the spirituality comes from the inside out. Uh, yeah, playing pool we talked about. Uh, trick or treating. Uh, I get it, man. Debbie and I were living in Houston. She was working in Pasadena, Texas, back in the early 70s when some horrible father took his kid trick-or-treating. He'd bought one of these long plastic pixie sticks. He'd cut it, put rat poison in it, taped it up very poorly, put it in his son's trick-or-treating bag. Is when everybody was doing trick-or-treating. We didn't have wholesome Halloween alternatives yet in churches, which I think is a great thing. But, yeah, he took his kid like around one block, took him home. You can have one candy before you go to bed. The dad gives him the rat poison. The kid dies a horrible death. And Debbie's lived, working in that in that suburb of Houston, and for a day it was like, oh my gosh, there's some monster in the neighborhood. And then as soon as the police investigated, it was obvious the dad did it. He just got into big insurance policy on his little kid. It just makes me physically ill to think about it now, and that was 40 years ago. But uh, for that reason, I think a lot of Christians said, it's not safe, and why are we doing this thing anyway? So let's just not do it at all, or let's do it. And kind of our alternative is, rather than just announcing the evil aspects of it, let's give a positive uh, uh, alternative where instead of dressing up like the devil or demons or something horrible, dress up like a king or a queen or a baseball player or a police officer or something like that, something positive, and let's enjoy each other. But, you know, if somebody said, well, I grew up, you know, in a little farming town in Oklahoma, and we went trick-or-treating, and our neighbors were all so friendly, and we weren't worshiping Satan, we were just enjoying, you know, Kids interacting with their neighbors and the parents were right with them and they all got candy in and they enjoyed that. Uh, to me, that's not a major moral issue. I mean, if you want to do that and not come to our Halloween alternative that uh, Shelby worked so hard on and the rest of us participate in, that's up to you. Sometimes people want to go to bigger churches that have bigger, fancier Halloween alternatives 
And hey, it's all about consumerism, isn't it, in America? So of course, go do that. Just show up on Sundays and Wednesdays here, please. But uh, up to you. So you've got this list, and I put it as trying to be funny, wearing a toupee, generally wearing a bad toupee like I've got, you know, specifically. Uh, you look at that list, and here's the problem. Uh, over the centuries, over the Latin American history, many American Christians have insisted that some or all of those things are black and white, thou shalt not, you do this under any circumstances, it's a sin and you're not spiritual, and you're probably not even saved if you're too dumb to realize that kind of thing is what they dump on you. However, I look at those, and a lot of longer lists I could give you, and I'm convinced these are within the frame of the uh, rectangle I gave you of the Garden of Eden kind of thing. Uh, by the way, there's Adam and Eve there. And when you when you look for uh, schematics of Adam and Eve, you know, uh, because they usually don't have any clothes on. You got, I, I opted for that one. I thought that was a safer uh, thing, you know, under circumstances. But yeah, you, you end up in some really weird websites when you do that. So I don't recommend that. No, it wasn't. It wasn't good. It's weird, man. I didn't know they did that. But here's the thing: the big circle is God's moral will. The dotted circle is within God's moral will. Should Christians buy insurance? You know, if your grandmother doesn't believe in insurance, don't force it on her. But don't look down your nose at her either if she sincerely hammered that out and she feels like, I'm going to trust God instead of get... Of course, I guess now you, you're you breaking the law if you don't have car insurance, so that's another issue. But notice in Romans 14.1, he says, Now accept the one who's weak in his faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgments on his opinions. We're not talking about the deity of Christ here or the literal resurrection here, those aren't opinions. Those are just doctrinal, uh, uh, rock-solid convictions of all Christians by definition. We're talking about whether or not it's okay to eat meats that had been offered to idols the day before. That's what he's talking about with the meats thing. Or whether it's okay for a New Testament Christian to celebrate the Passover. And if you want to, I think you should, and I think it's a great thing to do. And we're going to have a Messianic Jewish man here in a couple of months who's going to show us Christ in the Passover. We've done that before, but it's been a while. So if you want to do that, that's that's fine. But Christians are going to disagree on that kind of thing. But that word for opinions in Romans 14.1 uh, is a Greek word that means disputable matters. There's no dispute about the deity of Christ or the little resurrection or grace, salvation by grace through faith or murder, or adultery, or theft, or lying. Those are, it's not opinions there. We have straight, direct teaching from Scripture there. But you can look at it, and I've translated a lot of the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew, and I can't find a single verse that says, thou shalt not go to a store that uses computer scanners or barcodes. I mean, you can't find it. And in fact, these principles of Christian liberty are really neat, uh, Julie, because it's almost like God knew, as he's inspiring these guys to write, Hey, this stuff, Ben, is going to go to all the world, all different cultures through millennia, and you just can't write a specific do or don't on every possible thing that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, Eric Ward has to think about this week and this month in his Christian life. At some point, you have to have a, a large area that's, uh, designated as out of bounds, but that gives you a rectangle within which to operate, and we have to have some kind of uh, principles for how to make our decisions on those issues and how to relate to people who have a different opinion on those issues within the frame of Scripture, clear teaching. And so today we're going to say, to do that biblically, you need a lot of wisdom and a lot of love. And I want to walk through 
what this looks like. And we've got three principles under the wisdom you need to apply in these areas like uh, Christmas trees, uh, like uh, listening to music with a beat, like, uh, you know, the old thing was, th- this is old and I didn't go over it, but apparently when uh, Henry Ford first started mass producing automobiles, there were people preaching in pulpits. If God wanted us to roll with a motor, he would have given us wheels, you know. And then when the Wright brothers, we were just talking about the Wright brothers, uh, James and I, uh, and you got to love those guys, you know, bicycle mechanics who kind of figure out how to make a heavier-than-air flying machine. Uh, in the aftermath of that, there were a lot of sincere Christians who said, if God wanted us to fly, he would have given us wings. And, of course, they're very sincere in that, right? And, of course, that lady you know, asked me, Pastor, please pray for me. i got to fly cross-country next week. And I said, hey, the Lord will be with you. And she said, yeah, I know. He said, lo, I'll be with you. But I'm going to be in an airplane, you know. So, you know, those kind of things, you look at them now and you go, that's absurd that anybody would think. Uh, and, again, you might bump into somebody who still holds that position. But you're not going to find very many people anymore. But the problem is those things are still used against us at higher academia, when they really want to put all of us down, they basically say, these are the people who say, if God wanted us to fly, would have given us wings. You know, Well, some of us said that, and those were the, apparently their sincere convictions, or maybe they were just afraid of airplanes. You know, one of the two. But they've got a right to that, and we shouldn't look down our nose at them, but we ought to be stronger in the faith and realize that's an option if you want to do that. And it doesn't violate the faith if you do. Okay, so we're going to need wisdom and we're going to need love. So let's walk through that, okay? First thing we need to do in order to navigate in these waters of uh, how to apply general principles of Scripture within the specific moral and doctrinal confines and limitations of Scripture, we've got to realize there are a di- there's a difference between direct commands, I'm going to call those C1 commands, and general principles. Now go back to the Genesis uh, 2, 16, 17. Of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat. Is that a C1 or is that a C2? And follow, use the visual aid if you want to. Of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat. That's general. That's general. Now there's one exception. That's a good example. Quite often scripture will talk about one general statement that has assumed but unstated exceptions. And this was an example. And in, in, in if you read both verses, you understand it's a full kind of idea. Of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat, just generally. And I'm not going to tell you Monday's apples and Tuesday's oranges and Wednesday's grapefruits. I'm going to tell you, you decide every day, all day. It's up to you. He didn't make us robots. But of the one tree, uh, don't eat it at all, that would be a C1. Of the one tree, that one right there, don't eat. That's wrong, that's sin, I'm going to test you on that one. So, so you got to see that. I think an example, and I get this from Keith Krell, who's this really amazing pastor in Washington State. Uh, he said, uh, an example of the way these specific commands, do's and don'ts, and general commands or principles that we can make choices on, come, you can see it in everyday life, is in Washington State and in the state of Oklahoma, there are many intersections where you can legally make a right on red after you come to a complete stop. Are you familiar with that? Uh, Nick Faldo, when he first moved to the United States, he said, they, they asked him, what do you like about the United States? And he said, that law that you can actually make a right on red after you stop if it's, if it's open. Because he said, that's brilliant. In Great Britain, you can't make a right on red. It doesn't matter. But 
Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So that the general rule is when you see a stop sign, what are you supposed to do? Stop light. You're supposed to stop. That's the that's the I said general rule, but it's really a specific command, right? Stop on red, always. Now, Peter, three years old, he already knows stop, red is stop. Okay, you don't have to be, you know, no Greek or Hebrew, no red means stop. However, unless there's a specific notification that you can or you're waiting for an arrow, which means you can only do it usually, depending on what the rule is. For most, many intersections now, the, the general principle is after you stop and if you think it's safe, you can make a right turn. Now, we've all had situations where uh, maybe we haven't pulled into somebody coming when we were legitimately using that freedom to make a run on red, but you're not supposed to do it when something's coming. But, I mean, I've, I've done many times. I'm driving along straight, and I see this guy, and I know he stopped, and he hasn't seen me or isn't looking or in a hurry, and they'll pull right in front of you. So you can abuse that freedom, and I'm sure some accidents have happened as a result of that freedom. But that's how you get that specific command and that area of freedom both intersecting at the same time. That's the kind of thing that we're given in Scripture. Look at uh, Romans 14, 14. Nothing is unclean in itself. Now, we're reading this in context. Does that mean adultery is okay and bank robbery is okay and murder is okay? No, he's saying in this area within the Garden of Eden, where all the trees are okay, none of that's bad, even if you prefer apples over oranges. Nothing in these uh, general areas within the bounds of Scripture is unclean in itself, but if you think it's wrong, if you have a conviction against it, it is unclean to you. Uh, you know what? Uh, I can't see myself ever telling Jamie or Cooper yeah, just just go trick or treat down, go go down the street and come back later and tell me what you think. I don't think I'm going to send them there. I'm going to try to find TBF or a church that's got something nice or whatever. But if somebody else wants to do that, that's their perfect right. Nothing's unclean in itself, but for me, it wouldn't be a good thing to send my kids trick or treating for several different reasons, lots of different reasons. Now, look at uh, uh, Mark seven. Verse 14. Let's see what the Lord Jesus says about this principle. Mark 7, 14. And remember, we've got, we need to distinguish between direct commands, C1, and general principles, including general commands of all the trees of the garden you may eat, that we need to make wise decisions. And we've got the right, Anthony, and the freedom to make our own personal decisions, even if they differ from, from somebody else who may love the Lord just as much as we do. Okay, this is Mark seven fourteen. Jesus is interacting uh, during his great Galilee ministry with the crowds, and he called the crowd to himself again, and he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside of the man which can defile him, including playing cards, people, if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man, it's intent, it's volition, it's... Uh, uh, the message that you process on the uh, hard X-rated DVD as opposed to the DVD that's the problem, right? That's what defiles a person. Uh, verse 17, when he left the crowd into the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said, uh, are you guys so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man, the person from the outside doesn't defile him because it, doesn't go into his heart, his mind, and his will, and his choices, 
but into his stomach. It's just a biological function. It's eliminated. And then in parentheses, Mark, who's writing after the resurrection, says, thus, theoretically, he declared all foods clean. He's saying, you know, kosher was spirituality on training wheels. And on this side, we don't have to eat kosher. Uh, and he was saying, verse 20, that which proceeds out of a man, out of a selfish, sinful, uh, lazy, uh, self-centered heart, that's what defiles the person. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality. And these are the ones that trip us up. Envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Now go back to Romans 14. So that's the dynamic behind it. You know, for for us as Christians, spirituality functions from the inside out. It's not about external cooties. It's not like playing cards have cooties, and if you touch them or use them, you're a bad person. Uh, you can... My, Debbie's family knows every card game known to man, okay? I mean, hundreds of them. And they, they play Canasta, and they play Mahjong, too, and these other things. But I can't remember the rules of the card games, and I don't like to. So fortunately, I've got a curmudgeon uh, brother-in-law now, and he and I like to sit, play with our phones, and watch football while they're playing cards. But So praise God, I've been delivered from having to play endless rounds of cards, and I lose all the time, because once you play your second card, they know every card in your hand. I think they've got ESP or ESPN or something, or something like that. So, yeah. So there's the first principle. And, and trust me, a lot of Christians don't necessarily understand that there are some areas of freedom where within the moral bounds of Scripture and the doctrinal clear teachings of Scripture, where we've got a responsibility to distinguish uh, the difference. And the second principle is hammer out our own personal convictions, not for selfish reasons, but as unto the Lord. What's, what is legit for me and what is something maybe that I feel like I can enjoy within the frame of Scripture, and there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, Romans 14.5, one regards one believer in the church regards one day above another, and he studied Passover, and there's so much wonderful symbolism in Passover, and as a New Testament Christian, he can totally understand it, and he loves it, and he can't understand why everybody doesn't focus on it and worship it at home and enjoy it like it was intended to do. Another Christian says, no, you know, I mean, that's true, and that's great, but... I'm focusing not on Old Testament holidays, but on the reality of Jesus abiding in Him. We come to different opinions about that, and it's not a matter of spirituality. One's more spiritual than the other necessarily, and it's certainly not something we should uh, look down our nose at the other or, or judge them or criticize them about. He says, let each person be fully convinced in his own mind. So there is this difference between direct teaching and indirect teaching, direct commands and general principles we apply and any time, uh, guess what, uh, when you've got general biblical principles, Zane, that Christians are going to apply, we're all going to apply them differently. We're going to hammer out specific uh, convictions in our own hearts and lives, and we need to hammer out our own and then live consistently with them. And then kind of the converse of that, look at verses 3 and 4 of Romans 14 again, uh, the one who eats... The one who feels like he's got the freedom to eat anything in the garden and he enjoys everything, including pork chops and shrimp and catfish that was on the don't list under the Old Testament law. The one who eats, and he even eats meats offered to idols that had been offered to an idol the day before in Rome because that's the only kind of meat you could get in Rome. 
All the meat that was offered at a grocery store behind the pagan temples had been offered up to pagan gods the day before. And everybody knew that. And some Christians thought, I can't eat meat that's been offered up to Apollo. You kidding? I don't believe in Apollo, you know. To the extent he does anything, he's a front for demonic activity. So I'm not going to do that. And you could see why some people might think that. And if that's your conviction, don't eat it. So you're going to eat only vegetables in ancient Rome. But for others of us, as Paul explains in detail in 1 Corinthians 8, there's no such thing as an idol in the world. They're not real. They're gods of people's imaginations. And there's no cooties on that meat. If you want to eat it, all of the factors equal, you can. So verses 3 and 4, again, he's saying the one who eats is not to look down his nose at the person who has a more restricted diet because they don't want to eat meats offered to idols. Maybe because they were, maybe they were the son or daughter of a pagan priest and they saw some of the excesses and they just can't divorce in their minds the act of offering up that uh, animal the day before on a pagan altar and saying all the horrible things they'd say and doing that sacrifice and then the next day buying at the grocery store behind the temple and everybody knew that was meats offered up, up to idols. The other person doesn't want to do that. If uh, You shouldn't look down your nose like, man, you're not as smart as I am, you're not as spiritual as, as I am. And the flip side is the one who's got a stricter conscience, who's never going to eat meats offered to idols for conscientious reasons, isn't to judge the one who does eat, isn't supposed to condemn the one who one eats because that person answers to the Lord, not to one another. Okay, So it takes some wisdom to do that, and maybe one reason we don't teach this these principles often enough is because you've got to really use some hard thinking and praying and really decide on some of these issues, especially as new things come up. Uh, what am I going to do with that? What is we as a family going to do with that? I mean, when you've got young kids, and you're not young kids, you're kind of mediumly aged kids. That's a very bad way to say it. It's clunky. But I mean, I mean, Clay and Henry, I mean, like all American boys, you know, Jack Armstrong, the all American boy, he could be better than that. But, uh, you know, uh, just like the Old Testament was kind of spirituality with training wheels, with kind of a, a laser beam, kind of a, a tractor beam to going to the cross, and then we're on the flip side of that now, and so we can look at all of that together. I mean, some of the stuff, uh, you know, the, the baby eagle doesn't get kicked out of the nest the first day. Mom has to feed it and see it develop, and it's an amazing thing how these things evolve to learn how to fly every time. Not sure that happened that way. But, uh, yeah, these, these guys are like little eagles, and you're a little bit bigger little, little eagle, but to me, Clay, you're still a little eagle, and and Henry, you're a littler eagle, and so your parents are wisely trying to figure out how much autonomy, how much decision, maybe with your money, with your allowance. They get an allowance. They get. They get. They, usually, occasionally. Okay, you know, consistency with that is very important for parents, just so you'll know. So there's a problem there. Write that down. Okay, yeah, you're not consistent with allowance. Yeah, but you know, obviously, when uh, I mean, one of the joys of being a grandparent is giving these little kids a dollar bill and taking them to the Dollar Tree and say, you can get anything you want. And they think I'm Diamond Jim Brady. But the the first time we did that with Cooper and Peter, you know, it took them like 30 minutes to decide which toy they were going to get, you know, that you know is going to break within 15 minutes. I know that, you know. So anyway, we walk them up to the, to the cash register, I mean to the scanner. That's, that's a problem already, okay. Walk them up to the scanner, she scans it. And I said, hey, put your dollar bill up there, Cooper. He puts the dollar bill up there. She hands him the bag, takes the dollar. We walk out of the store, and he goes, hey, 
She took my dollar. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it works. So, but, uh, yeah, so I'm not sure where I was going with that. But anyway, you need some wisdom. <laughs> you need some wisdom, right? Uh, to know there, there is a difference. Not everything's black and white in the world. Sometimes we're applying general biblical principles, hammer out your convictions, and then don't be surprised or offended or scandalized when other people within the clear frame of Scripture have a different conviction in that same area than you do. It's okay. Paul's saying, get along. Don't make a big deal about it. It's inevitable, right? Now let's move to the love dynamics of this. It's not just doing what you want, any way you want to, anytime, any place. It's a little bit more uh, loving than that. I think the first principle is we need to be willing and we need just flat to limit our expression when, where, and how limit our expression of spiritual liberty, Christian liberty, when necessary to avoid giving offense to a weaker believer and causing him, him or her to stumble. Now, um, we talked about that. Let's do there. Look at Romans 14.13. I know we didn't read that, but it says, Therefore, let us not judge one another in these areas where we differ, whether we're eating meats offered idols or choosing not to, because this gives us uh, kind of uh, the vapors to think about doing that, and that's okay if that's the way you feel. But rather determine this not to put a stumbling block in another believer's way. Oh my goodness, what is that? We need to limit our expression of Christian liberty so we won't cause a weaker believer to stumble. Okay, what does it mean? Uh, interesting. Romans fourteen has a parallel. First Corinthians eight, nine, and ten. Take care that this liberty of yours, the distinguish between direct teaching and areas where you've got flexibility and freedom, and hammering out your conviction. Don't let the ex- expression of that somehow become a stumbling block. Same word, same concept, to the weak. Now, it's not me saying strong and weak. It's Paul saying strong and weak. I tried to summarize the essence of those labels on the on the flip side of your handout there. Strong believers in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 are people who do understand the wisdom involved in these spiritual liberty issues. And they enjoy their spiritual liberty. They have might have a real play, deck of playing cards in their house and play uh, pinochle or something with it. Uh, now, don't do it on Wednesday nights. Don't don't sign up for a Wednesday night pinochle league. Okay, I mean leave that free if possible. Uh, they do understand and enjoy their spiritual liberty, uh, and they're not offended with other believers who have different convictions who'd never have a deck of real playing cards in their house or whatever it is. Uh, this believer, this strong believer, is not arrogant about his or her knowledge and application of spiritual liberty, uh, and they're not surprised when certain believers disagree with them. It doesn't surprise them or offend them. Moreover, they don't try to sit everybody down and convince them of all of their personal convictions. They give everybody a right to hammer out their own. That's the strong believer. And the strong believer ought to be strong enough to realize that, as Paul says, go to 1 Corinthians 8, and let's see exactly what the causing another a weaker believer to stumble looks like. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 8. And let's see. Look at 8 through 12. But let me read uh, 
my understanding of what a weak believer is. It doesn't mean they're inferior or there's anything wrong with them. They just don't understand their or others' spiritual liberty fully. Uh, they are surprised when they bump into other believers whose specific convictions are different than theirs. I've told you about Jason Rivett uh, in Shreveport and when, uh, his wife warned me about Christmas trees because he had been told that Christmas trees were inherently evil. As we approached our first Christmas together, I was his pastor now. He was an Air Force pilot. She said, you know, don't let Jay, I don't know if you have a Christmas tree at your house, but don't let Jason know you've got one because he saw it as totally black and white. And he's since developed from there. But I'd say he was a weak believer in that area at that point. So weak believers don't understand these dynamics of spiritual liberty for whatever reasons. Maybe they haven't been taught them. Maybe they've rejected them. Or maybe they're just not aware of them. Uh, and so they're going to be surprised when they find out that other believers, especially pastors, don't have all of their specific convictions, many of which are stricter than Scripture. Uh, they just assume everybody sees everything the way they would. I mean, why not? Uh, but here's the problem. They can be, a weaker believer by definition, can be influenced to violate their convictions in some issues by what would otherwise be a totally legitimate action by a stronger believer. This is why stronger believers will limit when, where, and how they express their spiritual liberty in certain contexts because they don't want to cause a weaker believer to follow there, the stronger believer's example, and then second-guess themselves or have a false guilt later. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8. Bottom line, theology is, food will not commend us to God. It doesn't matter, he's saying, to God. But we're neither the worse spiritually if we don't eat meats offered to idols, or, we, or the better if we do. But here's what you should do. Knowing that, if you want to eat meat, Buy from the grocery store behind the temple of Apollo. You're not involved in the temple worship. You shouldn't go in the temple and eat in there because it's also a massage parlor. But if you want to buy the meat in the back, it's okay, Paul's saying. So he's making fine distinctions here. But take care that this liberty of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to weaker believers. And here's what I'm talking about. If someone sees you who have knowledge dining in the idol's temple, grabbing food from the idol temple, uh, will not his conscience, if it's weak, Maybe be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols because my pastor does, or Dale does. I know Dale and Homer are strong elders. If they have playing cards in their home, I guess it's okay for me to have playing cards in my home, even though they feel, uh, I'm going to use a technical term, icky about it. It just feels, it makes them feel dirty, and they, they've been told by their grandmother playing cards are evil, and they Realize maybe they're not inherently evil, but they just don't like them. They don't want them in, but Brad's got some and Dale's got some, so I guess uh, I want to be like them. And you need to be like Jesus, not necessarily like us. Hopefully we're a good example in, in some things. For through your knowledge, your application of your spiritual liberty, the one who's weak is ruined. He's going to have this false guilt and uh, just uh, be very miserable because he's violating his conscience. Uh, a brother for whom... Christ died. And so by sinning against the brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you've actually sinned against Christ. So you've got to be careful about, I mean, don't rub people's noses in your spiritual liberty, especially if you realize that uh, uh, you're commanded not to do this. Let me, let me, use, the, uh, let me use the example of movies, okay? Uh, you know, he's using meats because all the meat that was offered to, to, to eat in the big cities was always offered to idols and pagan idols. But today, the whole issue of movies, and I mean, Anthony and his uh, dad ran the uh, 
the film festival for over a decade, and you know they brought a lot of dollars into Duncan, and you get a lot a big crowd. And you know, I'm one of those. I'm one of the guys who always said, you know, next year I'm going to the film festival. Next year, I never, I never got around to going. But you know, if you ever start it again, let me know, and maybe I'll the year after you start, end it the second time, I'll do it. But uh, here's the thing on the movies. I've talked about this many times before. Uh, there are a lot of Christians who, in good conscience, are not going to go to a Hollywood movie in a movie theater, and maybe not even watch them on DVD, because they look at a sizable portion of that whole culture is very blasphemous. I mean, you can see it in the reaction to the election returns. I don't care who you voted. They're really very offended by some basic Christian uh, pillars. I mean, they're the the artsy, artsy, you know, actor community, not all of them, but many of them. I mean, not Chuck Norris, not John Wayne, but I mean, you know, uh, Meryl Streep or somebody, same a name, you know, are really offended by everything that's traditional and conservative and good anyway. And so there are some Christians who say, I'm not going to go to any Hollywood movies or buy their DVDs or do anything to support that industry with my dollars because even if Disney or somebody has a fairly wholesome film, if I go to that movie with my family, I'm putting money into that big colossus of Hollywood, which for the most part pushes a lot of anti-Christian stuff. And you know what? If that's your conviction, I totally respect that and I understand your reasoning. Okay? Other people will say, well, Paul says, you know, uh, nothing is evil in itself. The film's not evil. And I need to examine what, I need to go to those R-rated movies to see what the average unbeliever is thinking and where they're coming from spiritually and stuff like that. Uh, we get, uh, certain uh, Christian film critics, even at a pretty conservative site like ChristianAnswers.net, has a pretty eclectic film critic who goes just about to all the movies so he can tell us, you know, why we shouldn't go to certain ones. So I guess somebody's got to do that. And then there's probably, a, and, and I, I can see that. That's not where I am. And I'd say, man, you have to be pretty spiritually strong to do that. But you know what? Uh, you know, Paul was very much aware of Greek playwrights, and he quotes them a couple of times, and all of those plays were very crude and rude and had a lot of profanity and nudity and everything like that. So he was aware of some of those plays because the culture was so aware. But And I'm kind of in the middle. My feeling is, and this is going to offend both groups. That's the cool thing. Quite often I end up in the middle, not because I'm trying to placate people, but because I've come to the realization that's where the truth is almost every time. Is God one or is God three? Both. Is Jesus son of God or son of man? He's both. Uh, should we never support anything produced by the Hollywood movie industry? Some people feel that way. God bless you. I don't look down my nose at you. I understand your logic. Should we, uh, should we, uh, uh, look at all of it and analyze it from a Christian perspective so we can think about our faith better and react to people who are influenced by that better? That's not my ministry, but it might be somebody's. My feeling in the middle is, you know what? The movie industry, the media is neutral. The one thing they do understand is dollar bills. So if somebody cranks out a decent, wholesome movie about a World War II hero, hero and uh, we're the good guys and the Nazis are the bad guys, and I want to go, I might go to a movie like that thinking the only thing they understand, that industry understands, is dollar bills. And if that movie, which is a wholesome movie and it's pro-American, pro 
traditional values, as it were. There is an evil, and we need to go take it out if we can. Uh, the only thing they understand over there in Hollywood, which I guess is that way, not that way, right, uh, is how much money the movies make. So if this traditional, good, wholesome movie makes ten gazillion dollars, you know what's going to happen next year? They're going to make two of them. And if those make gazillions of dollars, they'll make ten of them the next year, right? So in my mind, and I still don't go to many movies, just I'm, I'm busy, you know, I'm watching the Golf Channel most of the time, but uh, i got important stuff to do. But uh, to me, I've got a right to do that, and that's my position. And it's got a pragmatic idea that I'm going to support this stuff, or at least in theory, the stuff that's good. But I think that's a good example of that kind of issue. There is no uh, Bible verse, Katie, that says, Thou shalt not go to movies. Okay, And we got Paul citing Greek and Cretan poem, poets and playwrights that wrote all kinds of semi-pornography that he's apparently aware of us out there. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about. Am I being clear? I've, I had so much, so great hopes for this message, and I feel like it's kind of getting fuzzy, and I feel like it's my fault. It's like that, Ben, I recently dreamed I was preaching a really boring message, and then I woke up and realized I was. And, man, that was a bad, a bad Sunday. So we need, but here's the thing. Here, here's the thing. If, so all that said about movies, if I, if I got somebody in the church or just a friend, just somebody in Duncan who's a believer, who sincerely I know because they've told me about it, won't go to any movies. And I go to this, what I think is a wholesome movie, and it had two Ds and three Hs. You can figure out what words I mean. And it showed, you know, a thigh, too much of a thigh. And it was a girl, you know. I don't notice stuff like that, but just that one time I, I noticed it. Uh, you know what? If I see them at school the next day or at the seminar the next day, I'm not going to go, man, you really ought to go to that movie. because I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to rub my nose in it. Especially if I think maybe they know I'm a pastor or something, and and that and I might say, well, I know you've got a conviction never to do that, but you really ought to see this one. You know what? I'm not going to do that because I don't want them to violate their conviction based on me. Now, if they question their conviction at some point and ask me my opinion, I'll tell them. At that point, I will try to get them to look at a bigger set of options. But we don't want to unnecessarily give offense and cause somebody to be influenced to violate their conscience because of our decision on some of these issues that we know is different from theirs and we're not quite sure they can handle it. So it takes some some love to limit your expression of that and just some sensitivity to people's needs, where they're coming from. Okay. Uh, second area is we need to live out our liberty even though... Legalistic believers, people who are stricter than Scripture and don't understand Christian freedom, will take offense. This is very important. Man, there's a difference between giving offense to a weaker brother and a legalistic, I'm going to use a bad word here, jerk, taking offense. Let me ask you a question. Do you know anybody you really, really love in the Bible and he's your Lord and your Savior? who's had a problem with people taking offense at him? Did that ever happen? Look at Matthew 15. Yeah, you don't want to give offense to weaker believers who might be influenced to violate their convictions because of your example. On the other hand, if they want to talk to you about some of these principles and how it is that different Christians have different opinions and it's legit, then you talk to them and they might have a broader view of it. 
But you don't want to give offense. But you can't keep people from taking offense. Look at Matthew 15, verse 10. Now this is not the only time this happens. This happens multiple times. And I'm going to define uh, the Pharisees as legalistic theists, believers in God, not regenerate people. But legalistic believers uh, either don't understand or reject the principles I'm trying to teach you now. I'm not sure what they do with Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8, 9 and 10. They believe almost every issue is black and white. They're offended. They take offense at other believers whose convictions in areas of biblical freedom are different than theirs. But in contrast to weak believers, they're not going to be tempted to violate their convictions. They're not going to violate their convictions. What they will do is slander and question you and either your sanctification or even your salvation. Legalistic believers are proud of their self-proclaimed spirits of superiority over other believers who dare to have different convictions than they do. And that's part of the joy of the pastor bumping into people who want to uh, condemn you because uh, they find out you went to a movie or something. And I haven't had many TBFers do that over the years, but I've had a lot of people in the community. Not not a lot, but more than a few. Uh, Matthew 15, verse 10. Jesus called the crowd and said to them, this may sound familiar. It's the same passage, but we got a little bit extra here. Here and understand, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man. It's not about kosher foods that's really a dynamic uh, sanctification factor. But that which proceeds out of the mouth, uh, what he says is based on his heart that defiles the man. Then the Pharisees came to him after he said this to the crowd. And we've got Pharisees watching, trying to find something not to like about Jesus. And they say to Jesus, this is great, like he doesn't know. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Do you know the Pharisees were offended? When they heard that statement, they took offense. When you talked about spiritual liberty, maybe you shouldn't do that. Jesus, I guess we won't. Nobody says, right, no problem. You know, me telling them I'm, I'm the Christ, that offends them too. And when Peter says, hey, everybody's leaving you said you're the only way to heaven. Everybody's leaving. He says, you guys want to leave too? Fine. I mean, we're not compromising on that. But look what happens. Jesus said, look, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant is going to be uprooted. The Pharisees are, are, are fraud. Leave them alone. They're blind, blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, they'll both fall in the pit. Uh, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he goes on and he says, you know, it's all about the internal dynamics. So Jesus is very much aware he, uh, what he said, uh, was taken wrong. And rather than, uh, uh, giving offense, they were actually taking offense at what he said, which was very legitimate. And so it's important that under love, uh, we live our liberty even though legalistic believers may be offended. Uh, I've said this many times. But you know what? Uh, man, I love TBF. But here's the thing. Sometimes our informal approach to things, including my informal approach and some of my goofy jokes and some of the faces I make. Remember, Sherry, the first time you visited, I think, oh, like that, like several times trying to make a point. Probably before I had my teeth fixed. My teeth are good now, but before, not good. But that's all she remembered the first day, you know? And so I apologize. And that was bad. You know, I don't want to be an issue like that. But because we are informal, me and Dale, and, and we feel like we're a big family. You know, we're, we're just this big, dysfunctional spiritual family. You know, uh, that was focuses on the grace of God. But 
But I, I can see how some people, if you grew up in a in a high church in an Episcopalian background where everybody's quiet, nobody says anything, and 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 they do that ideally out of great reverence, and that's wonderful. But I can see how people could come in here from that kind of background and see our informality as irreverence. You know what? And when when people do that, you know, I don't look down my nose at them as much as it grieves me that they would see it that way. But I can understand how they would. I don't think that's what's happening. You know what I mean? So you have those kind of dynamics happening. Yeah, so uh, we need to live out our liberty. I think we need to be what we are as a church, even though some people aren't going to like it and they might even misunderstand it at times, you know. If they want us, and here's the third principle, if they want us to explain honestly, not just to get more information or more ammunition against us, you ought to be able to explain why you have playing cards or why you go to movies. Or you need to explain why you don't have playing cards. I know it's legitimate, but I grew up in a, you know, with a, in a culture of, you know, obsessive, uh, compulsive, addicted gamblers, and my dad, you know, bet the house at a poker game, and we lived in the streets for 25 years, and I just don't want to have anything like that in my house. You know what? God bless you for that. You know, you're probably very wise. But don't condemn all playing cards. It's You've got more issues going on than just the playing cards kind of thing. And I don't even know where the playing cards in my house are, just so you'll know. I'm, Debbie knows. But I don't know where they are. I don't play cards that much. Right? So... What we want to do is avoid in love causing somebody who doesn't understand has got a weaker conscience violating their convictions because they see us doing things they wouldn't do even though they are legitimate. That's what he's saying there. So we got those four categories. We've got strong believers who we've defined as people who understand spiritual liberty issues. They're happy to hammer out their convictions. They're not surprised or offended when other people have different convictions and they don't cram them down anybody's throats. The weaker believer is very sincere, but maybe they've been told the King James Bible is the only legitimate Bible translation in English. And there are a lot of people who have been taught that, who sincerely believe that, who haven't done the research to know that's not true. Uh, and if that's where they are and they're happy with that, I'm not going to sit them down and condemn them and try to talk them out of their King James Bible. Of course use the King James Bible. If that kind of group wanted me to do a, a one-and-done Bible study, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take my New American Standard Bible. I'm going to take my King James and I even bring the subject up. Uh, but then, you know, I, I'm trying to do is not uh, mess them up by giving them knowledge and out of context that they won't appreciate. But you got to watch out for the legalistic believers because, number one, they're totally spiritually colorblind. They think everything's black and white, especially kind of stuff we do. I mean, uh, again, you know... Uh, I should have thought of a specific example, but something I do regularly up here that people would freak out over in certain contexts that it's not religious enough or spiritual enough. Uh, they're, they're just mad at somebody all the time, and they're constantly impressed with how, specific, how spiritual they are. And I, I've often said from the pulpit, if you're impressed, Michael, if you're impressed with how impressed you are with Jesus, you're not impressed with Jesus, you're impressed with yourself, and that's not spirituality. That's the cool thing about these dynamics that are real. When you really focus in on Jesus, you don't notice on how great you are. You notice on how great he is. So, big question. How should we conduct ourselves in these areas? Like of all the trees of the garden, you may fully eat, freely eat, and some people are going to eat apples every single day, and others are going to eat a little bit of everything, and some will never eat the guavas. Uh, how do you deal with that? People who go to movies all the time, who go to selective movies or don't go to movies at all, uh, you need to apply wisdom and love, right? That's what you need to do. And how do you do that? Well, I think you live out your liberty 
in wisdom and love based on kind of the parameters we talked about. We're to love other believers, including those who have different opinions on these things than we do, including weaker ones and legalistic ones. Uh, we should uh, use our knowledge and application of spiritual liberty concepts uh, such that we uh, are able to, from the heart, seek to glorify Jesus with all of our decisions, but not be limited by some artificial construct that's stricter than Scripture. Uh, we're to love our weaker brothers in our church and outside of our church. Sometimes it's a fairly newer believer uh, or somebody who just hasn't had this kind of instruction before from these passages. And we, uh, I'm not going to rub their nose into the last movie I went to, which I think was, uh, uh, I don't know, Old Yeller. It was a long time since I went to a movie. Actually, it was uh, God's Not Dead 2, right? Remember, that's the last one we went to. Uh, but I'm not going to rub that in somebody else's nose. Uh, I've got somebody I work with at Cameron Duncan, who's a very sincere Christian, who brought this up, not tweaking me, but she thought she was scandalized. Some church she heard about in town and had a meal in their sanctuary. And this was freaking her out. It's like 666 all over again, you know? And uh, that's one reason I don't like to call this the sanctuary. The New Testament calls believers the sanctuary. This is just a building or an auditorium. But I, I know that term is used a lot. And she was scandalized by that. And you know, I didn't feel like I had, and, and, but I could tell she was not teachable about it. And I didn't feel like I had to sit her down and straighten her out on that. I'd be, lo- be glad to talk to her about it sometime, debrief her if she wanted to. But there's no reason for me to try, especially in front of other people, to try to do that. I mean, uh, But uh, I, I'm for sure not going to mention the next potluck we have here to her. <laughs> Because it's just not worth it, you know? It's not that I'm hiding it. I'm just not going to, you know... Now, if she finds out about it and asks me about it, and, and she wants me to explain, I'll try to explain, right? If she's teachable. But that's what we're talking about. So, you know, it, it'd be nicer if you had 10 billion do's and don'ts, and all you had to do is look on your card and make all your decisions based on that. But then you'd be robotic and mechanical. And God wants you to be real and make real choices in it, within the frame of Scripture, lying, fornicating, denying the deed of Christ... Teaching salvation by works, that's off the chart. We're talking about within the frame of clear biblical teaching, God says, paint me a picture. Okay? And uh, some of our pictures are going to look a lot different than other people, but they're all going to be looked at by the Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul's basically saying. Don't judge everybody else's pictures, you know. Uh, for me, anything my grandchildren draw, masterpiece, there are no wrong answers here. And guess guess what? Uh, Cooper recently was coloring something, did a wonderful job in the lines, and he's a genius, you know. And his grandmother, my first wife, said, Peter, and, and Cooper, you do a beautiful job coloring. I, by the way, I, if you want to hear the real thing, talk to Debbie later. I get home and she tells me, no, that wasn't what he said. He said something else. But this is my rec- rec- recollection of it. Recently, he colored something at our house that's beautiful. His grandmother complimented it. And he looks up and says, yeah, I, I practice every night at the restaurant, which meant apparently they take him out to eat every night where he colors. And when his mother heard that, she said, oh, brother, you know, we don't take him out every night. And I said, just the other day, I said, Debbie, what do you, you got to execute this thing. What he meant was every night when they go to a restaurant, which is maybe once or twice or three times a month, they tend to go to restaurants where they give little kids pages to color. But the way he said it, it sounded like they go to the restaurant every night and he practices every night. So... And maybe he does, and the mom was lying, but that's just what, you, you gotta do that. 
So let's live our liberty and wisdom and love. And you know, TBF, I think generally we do this because, it, and by the way, let me say one more thing. You know what? Individual churches have a perfect right to hammer out specific convictions that are stricter than the big box that we had around the trees of the Garden of Eden. They have a perfect right to do that. And that's how you get denominations often. They have a specific conviction about the mode of baptism, which they think is a deal breaker. And I, I believe in immersion, but I'm not offended by the fact that many Reformed people sprinkle babies, okay? I, I understand the reasoning for that. I disagree with it. I'm not offended by it. I'm not going to do it. I once had somebody said, would you sprinkle my baby if I have a baby? I said, I will not sprinkle your babel, baby, but, or your babel, but, <laughs> but as far as I'm concerned, subject to elder approval, if you're convinced sprinkling is the legitimate mode of baptism, I'm not doing it because I don't believe it is. You know, I love you. But if you want to bring in an ordained person who, who believes that, now we get Brent. We get, get Brent now. I'm perfectly fine with that. Okay? So this applies to me. This, this, this isn't a conspiracy for me to get everything I want or justify all the stuff I do, like riding a bicycle backward uphill uh, every day when I go to Cameron Duncan or something. No, I'm kidding about that. But, yeah, bottom line is, look at this. You know, the issue, one of the issues he dealt with was meats, whether you eat meat or not. And it wasn't really a vegetarian uh, kind of a diet thing. It was more meats offered to idols as opposed to, I just avoid that completely. He just says, bottom line is, the kingdom of God, the dynamics of real spirituality, isn't about external stuff like playing cards or whether you go to certain movies or don't go to movies or what you eat or what you drink, but righteousness, not righteous. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I would say, you know, when you understand these principles and apply them, it uh, maximizes the chances of Christians in a church like this getting along. And that's important because we don't have a set specific doctrinal statement. Those who hammer out and say, King James only, we believe that, and that's a key thing in our church. I totally respect that. They've got a right to do that, Kitty. But I don't believe that's the best Bible translation. So guess what? I'm not going to that church. Now, guess what? Let's say Debbie and I got uh, in, ended up living in Khartoum, Sudan, Sudan, and the only church there, and I'm not preaching, I'm doing something else, the only church there was a King James-only church that was good on the gospel, but they had that idiosync, idiosyncrasy, uh, specific thing they believed, I can't say it under pressure. You know what? I'd go to that church and take my King James Bible, right? That's part of the dynamics of Christian liberty. It's not about you getting what you want. It's about you trying to fine-tune your life to please the Lord and your responsibilities. And try that starts with Julie and works out, okay? And then living that uh, as you love the Lord and not being a judge or a critic of everybody else who disagrees with you. It's really a genius thing here that uh, comes from the Word of God, isn't it? That's cool. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to... Enjoy our liberty without succumbing to license and getting outside the lines or becoming legalistic and using our specific applications in all these general areas as some kind of spiritual litmus test for everybody else in our church or everybody else out of our church or whatever like that. Help us to realize that the core of our spirituality is abiding in you, our Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing and responding from the heart to the one who has saved us. And you know, I realize a lot of people have heard Better preachers than me summarize these principles before. A few people probably never heard these principles taught like this at all. And maybe it's going to take them a while to think through it. But help them to see the truths here that we've tried to 
to communicate and help all of us to recommit to living those out to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.